Hello and welcome to Positively Pro-Life, a podcast brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life aims to bring you inspirational stories and conversation, important legislative updates and informative interviews as we seek to restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm your host, Remel Tenney, the Education Director at the Federation, and joining me is our Legislative Director, Maria Gallico. Hello and welcome, Maria. Hello, Remel. It's great to be with you today. It's so good to have you, and I love co-hosting with you. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So overturning Roe in June of last year was undoubtedly a major victory for the pro-life movement. But the fight for the unborn and the pregnant mothers continue. The battleground right now is chemical abortions, but more than half of the total abortions in the U.S. is done using mifepristone, the abortion pill. Since the Dobbs decision, the FDA expanded access to the abortion pill by allowing pharmacies to dispense them and even allowing allowing the mailing of these pills to pregnant women uh, considering abortions. And this is undoubtedly the the hot topic of the moment, with much engagement from the public, the state governments, and the judicial systems. There's been a lot of development on that front over the past few months, and our guest today is Randall O'Bannon from National Right to Life, and he is a research expert, and lately his interest has been largely on the abortion pill, its effects, and risks to women. So stay on to hear from him. You will be hearing from him as soon as we are done with our inspiration and our legislative update, which Maria will be sharing with us uh, in, a short, in a short time. And she will share with us about the annual National Right to Life Convention that will be held in Pittsburgh. Now it's time for our inspiration. So last week, our director, Chris Pushaw, and I had the opportunity to attend the Post-Row America Conference at the Grove City College's Institute for Faith and Freedom. Now, there were so many diverse topics on, of discussion about pro-life issues, policies, life-affirming works that are being done, families, law, you name it, they talked about it. So there's so much good stuff. And uh, now this was happening at a college where the students helped organize the event. And it was so good to see a lot of student involvement. Um, there were students who were, uh, who were sitting in on these lectures and, and presentations uh, as part of their curriculum in order to get credits. There were people who were just interested. Um, there were people who were organizing, emceeing. And um, one of the speakers, uh, it was very, very encouraging and inspiring to see a young, a bright young college woman named Lucia Hunt. Uh, she coordinated uh, her speech with uh, another professor, um, not from Grove City College, uh, but a scholar from a different uh, from a different institution. And she gave a very enlightening talk about the abortion tourism industry, especially in the past few months. Uh, just how the abortion industry has ramped up its advertising, uh, its um, the availability of of the office of their procedures and, and pills and things like that. Uh, it was a very, very good presentation. Now, at the end of that presentation, um, her father was also present. He shared a story about her, and that's what I want to share with you all today. 
So Lucia Hunt, um, when she was uh, in, she's she's still a student at, at Franciscan University. And uh, but before that, in high school, when she started out at her new school, she noticed that they didn't have a pro-life club at that school. And she had always been involved in the pro-life uh, activities and her previous school had it. So she decided that if there was not going to be, I mean, if there didn't exist one, then she was going to start one. Um, so she, she tried to start a pro-life club, but the school authorities, um, apparently whoever was in charge, wouldn't allow her. They wouldn't give her permission because they said, I, I don't really know the, the reasons why, but they, they were a little bit biased against the pro-life movement and pro, against starting a pro-life club at the school. And she was pretty upset about it, but um, that's when a friend of hers told her about the First Liberty Institute, which is a nonprofit law firm in Texas uh, that is dedicated to defending religious liberty for all Americans. And um, now this was conveniently located close to where Lucia lives. So after school, this young thing goes to First Liberty Institute, walks in there and tells them, my school is not letting me have a pro-life club and I want to sue them for it. Yeah. And I want you to help me. I mean, like the audacity of a young high school <laughs> who's so passionate for life that she actually sued her school and said that she, they must allow her to have one. And good news, she got that. Um, her school allowed her to finally have a pro-life club uh, and uh, she was able to, uh, to do activities under that. And, um, and it didn't just stop there. Um, she, she shared, uh, her father actually shared that she had up until then wanted to be a medical professional growing up. But, um, but since this incident, she decided that she wants to be a lawyer and she wants to fight for justice. And uh, so she went back to the Institute and she said, I want to intern here, even though she was just in high school and, you know, she's, but they, they just knew that she was passionate. So she got to intern there. And now she's well on her way to becoming a lawyer. Um, she's in a pre-law um, course in her college. And uh, yeah, so, uh, and her passion for pro-life is just amazing. It was just amazing to witness. Um, she was one among several young women uh, and uh, several young men that, that I got to hear from at the conference. And they all spoke with such deep conviction about the dignity of life, as well as, well as with uh, a mature understanding of human nature, especially of those in their own generations, the millennials and, and, and the Gen Zers. And it was, it was so inspiring to hear them um, speak for life, defending it, uh, while also be understanding the difficulties that, uh, that young people have in making, the, in making choices uh, about life. Um, and I just left there, you know, after, after the conference, I just left there thinking, man, there is such hope for our future. And it's so inspiring to see young torchbearers who are willing to go the distance for life and truth and justice. 
I hope this encourages everyone who's listening, know that we have a strong army in our young people when it comes to the fight for life. Um, so do not be discouraged. There will, there will be people um, who, are, who, are, who will keep the momentum going uh, in the many years to come. So I will leave you with that thought and let's hear from Maria now. Thank you so much, Ramel. The National Right to Life Convention will be held June 23rd and 24th in Pittsburgh. According to National Right to Life News, here's what to expect. When you wake up on Friday morning, you will make your way to our registration table. From there, you will either have an opportunity to attend our prayer breakfast or get breakfast in the airport concourse or the hotel restaurant. Next, you will be able to attend the first general session of the weekend. Then you and the other attendees will break up, having the option to choose from one to six amazing workshop sessions, where there will be dedicated time for questions and answers at the end. After a break for lunch on your own and another general session, there will be several more workshops. Then take some time to recoup and get to know other attendees at dinner, discussing what you learned in any of the five plus sessions you attended that day. Round out the evening with a final general session after dinner and head to bed or make use of the hotel's pool or fitness center. On Saturday, you'll have a chance to sleep in a little later than on Friday. Saturday will also be chock full of general sessions, workshops, and engaging with fellow attendees. Breakfast and lunch are on your own on Saturday, but plan to join us for our seven o'clock social hour reception, which proceeds the Closing Banquet at 8. Closing Banquet is a favorite of regular convention attendees. And we'd like to invite all of our listeners to attend the National Right to Life Convention in Pittsburgh. It's going to be a spectacular event. I know I'm excited about it. Remel. I am too. Thank you for that, Mario. Now on to our guest. Randall O'Bannon has been the Education and Research Director at National Right to Life for over three decades and has extensive knowledge on various pro-life issues in the country. Now, recently, he has a series of blogs, blog posts on the NRL News blog dedicated to the abortion pill called Addressing Many of the Myths the Media is Repeating About the FDA's Approval and Management of Mifeprex, also known as Mifepristone. Now, I don't know anyone else out there who is following the legal political proceedings as closely on this issue or doing his research on Mifepristone as much as Randy is. So we are so excited and glad that he is here with us today to talk about it. Welcome, Randall, to Positively Pro-Life podcast. It's good to be with you, uh, Ramel and uh, Maria. Yes, yeah, so we asked this question. Let's start with the very basic. Um, Tell us a little bit about the work that you do at uh, NRLC. I, I mentioned a few, but I'm sure you would shed right. more light on what you do. You're right. I've been there for quite a while. Uh, and I work as the Director of Education and Research, which means essentially that I analyze and assemble facts, figures, information, and arguments to sort of make the case for the wider uh, public, uh, the case for life. And over the years, I've done research and writing on fetology, uh, miracles of many miracles of human development abortion statistics, the activities of groups like Planned Parenthood, and abortion methods like chemical abortion, which I've been following since uh, all the way back, I guess, 1994, 96, when they 
the FDA first considered uh, uh, RU46 or, or mifepristone uh, as an abortifacient. So yeah, I've been tracking this for quite a while. Now we're recording this on April 19th, a Wednesday. But at this point, can you give us an overview of the abortion pill status nationally? Uh, yes, I'm afraid it's a bit of a long story because um, there are a lot of moving parts in, in this. Uh, as you know, uh, for several years, after several years of contentious haggling and negotiations, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which we're going to just call the FDA from now on, it approved uh, RU46 mifepristone for sale in the U.S. in September 2000. Um, when it did so, though, it did so with significant restrictions on the distribution and prescription of the drug. Uh, for example, it only allowed the pill at that time to be distributed through certified physicians who could attest that they understood how the complex multi-drug, multi-step process, uh, how that worked, that they knew how to date pregnancies. Uh, why was that important? Because the drug's effectiveness, uh, that's in quotes, that tailed off and complications increased after a certain number of weeks. Um, they also had to test they could identify and diagnose the presence of ectopic pregnancies, which these pills do not treat, uh, and that they could also attest uh, that they could provide or arrange for surgical backup in case the pills failed to trigger excessive bleeding. Now, also in that protocol, and these, these, are, these are sort of technical details, but these are actually the, the elements that are in dispute right now in these different court cases. So it's need and be important to understand these. Um, they also specify in the protocol that they be limited to women that were no more than 49 days or seven weeks past their last menstrual period or LMP. And they required that they were supposed to make three visits to the clinic or the doctor's office. And the first visit, they would be screened and counseled. And then if they passed those tests, they were given the uh, mifepristone pills what the mifepristone does is it blocks the pregnancy hormone progesterone, um, which essentially deprives the child of essential nutrients. And then a second visit, a couple of days later, they come in to receive misoprostol, which is a prostaglandin which initiates powerful uterine contractions to expel the dead or, or the dying baby. And then finally, they came back about a th for a third visit about a week or so out to determine whether or not the pills had been effective or they were going to come in for further treatment. Uh, now, I go into this detail because this is, like I said, this is the conditions that are actually being disputed right now in the court cases. But uh, essentially, the uh, supporters of abortion pill, they want to do away with any and all limits that are on these uh, prescription. And they want these pills readily and easily available anywhere, anytime. And as, as the years have gone by, the FDA has gradually moved in that direction. For example, in 2016, uh, the FDA extended the deadline from seven weeks LMP to 10 weeks. It also reduced the number of required visits from three to one. It expanded the pool of prescribers to include not just physicians, but anyone that was a certified healthcare provider. So, so that could be a nurse practitioner, a midwife, any clinician with a couple of who's, who's simply taken a couple of medical courses at the local community college. Uh, that would be sufficient if they, as long as they would fulfill the uh, certification requirements. Uh, even this, though, was still not good enough for the abortion industry because they pushed on dropping all the visits entirely, prescribing these by telemedicine without any direct physical examination, having the women able to pick these up at pharmacies or have them shipped directly to their homes by overnight mail. So 
Now, when the Biden administration came along, the FDA gave the industry the clearance even for these uh, further measures in December 2021, and they formalized this change and spelled it out in the new procedures that they just published back in January of this year. Um, now, so that means that you now have these without any visits, uh, you have these supposedly going to be available at pharmacies. Now, the, the FDA, I'll say this, much to the abortion industry's chagrin, they didn't drop their certification procedures entirely, but they said that the certified healthcare providers could remotely prescribe these, that orders for abortion pills could be filled and shipped from certified pharmacies. Now, several of the major pharmacy chains, ones that we know, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, have all announced intentions to stock and sell abortion pills, but have not, at least as recently as two, two weeks ago, completed the certification process to be able to distribute these drugs yet. And that's pretty much where we stand today, with various groups suing and countersuing the FDA over the decisions that it's made, ranging from the original approval from 2000, the most recent changes that it made to the protocol, uh, even as lately as uh, January this year. We should, uh, we're supposed to hear something today as to whether the Supreme Court accepts the, the rulings of the district court judge from Texas, which rescinded the uh, FDA's original approval of the drug, or from the uh, Fifth Circuit Court, which is dialing back their distri distribution limits to what they were before 2016. And we'll maybe, I, I checked right before I came on the air, didn't see it yet, but uh, it could be any time today that we'll find out exactly what they're going to do with that. Yeah, um, so we know that the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine had had brought a case against the FDA. Uh, can you tell us why was the FDA challenged on its approval of the abortion pill? Um, we 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 look at FDA as the as the unit, the authoritative unit that says, okay, this is okay, this is not. They are the right. experts. But we have an alliance that was formed that challenged the approval of uh, of specifically the mifepristone. So right. uh, can you tell us the circumstances for that? Sure. There, there were multiple problems with the FDA's uh, 2000 approval of mifepristone. Uh, first and foremost, there's no reason for an agency that's supposed to be committed to public health and safety uh, of, of the, the country's population to be considering a drug which is specifically designed to take the lives of human beings. It should never have gotten a hearing in the first place. Um, second, uh, you have to understand something. It's just its basic evaluation process doesn't make any sense when apply this intended for killing rather than, than curing human beings. For example, how do you evaluate the safety or efficacy of a drug whose purpose is to kill? Is, is, a, is a drug that kills more people more effective than a drug that only works 90% of the time? Is safety only a matter of how many women survive the abortion attempt? Um, third, the FDA skipped a lot of its usual testing and trials that it requires for most other drugs to approve a mifepristone under what's a special uh, regulation called the subpart H regulation. That allows for accelerated approval for drugs that are used to treat serious or life-threatening illnesses. Now, that was specifically designed when they were dealing with AIDS uh, early on. Now, most people understand that pregnancy is not a serious or life-threatening illness. It's a normal, mm -hmm. natural, healthy process that millions of women go through every year. The FDA did this though, to enable the drug to move forward 
and also to give the agency legal grounds to be able to control the distribution and to set conditions on who prescribed the drug and how it was used and how it was monitored. Now, what does the data since approval say about the risks to women? That's a good question, Maria. Uh, abortion pill advocates like to tell you, and they'll say this over and over again, that 23 years of experience and more than two decades of scientific data have only confirmed the drug's safety and efficacy. But even with the fact that the abortion industry, are, they're the ones performing and publishing most of these studies, they're the ones setting up the scientific spin and controlling much of the narrative, it's still a very selective reading of even their own data. Now, I've studied and I've analyzed a lot of the studies that have put out by the abortion industry over the years. They regularly claim high safety and efficacy rates, upwards of 98, 99%, and claim that problems and complications are minuscule or even non-existent. But when you get into the numbers, when you study the charts, you regularly find that large numbers of women disappear sometime between when they first show up at the clinic and receive their pills and the time when it's time for them to check back in. So you may have some idea of how the women who return to the clinic fared, but you have no idea about the women who are lost to follow up. That's a very big deal. It's not just a sort of statistical anomaly that you find in some studies. Women for whom the drug works, they have no problem telling the clinic that they're fine. But women who have problems, who have serious bleeding or cramping issues, severe gastrointestinal distress, signs of infection, and the rest, they're not going back to the clinic where all they saw was a nurse who gave them a pill and a phone number to call for the emergencies. They're going to head for their local emergency room, which is probably closer and has a staff which is trained and ready to handle and treat medical crises like the one that she's going through. Now, mm -hmm. it's interesting that studies that measure emergency room admissions rather than the reports that come out of come from abortion clinic uh, abortion clinics and their personnel they find much higher rates of complications being reported than what most of the other studies do for example a 2015 study by a noted abortion researcher from California found that 5.2% or more than 1 in 20 were visiting an emergency room with some sort of complication that's much higher than what the, we've seen other other places a British researcher found nearly 6% of chemical abortion patients were treated for complications connected to incomplete abortions or that they had, in his words, retained products of conception. This was when official government reports in Britain were claiming that less than a tenth of a percent of chemically aborting women experienced any problems. That's quite a different number, from one up to, to hundreds or thousands. Um, now, a more recent Canadian study from earlier this year which is that we're in Canada where they're already using the the uh, the uh, distribution model, pharmacy distribution model, similar to the one that's now being set up in the United States, found 10.3% of chemical abortion patients visiting the emergency room at some point. Um, that's more than one in 10. And that's much different than what they're, that the abortion industry is reporting. The FDA's own official government report shows that there were 28 deaths and thousands of significant, in their words, adverse events or complications like infections, hemorrhages, and ruptured ectopic pregnancies that have been associated with the use of mifepristone. Now, these are the only ones that have been reported to the agency. Unless a woman tells the emergency room personnel that she has taken the abortion drug, her complication or even her death are never going to be reported to the agency as such. Clearly, chemical abortions are not nearly as safe or as simple as the FDA and abortion pill advocates would like us to believe. 
It's very interesting that you bring that up because uh, there is a website that mails pills to young women, usually students, children, and uh, um, young girls in high schools. And something that they have on there is it is safe. But if there is a medical complication, go to the hospital, but do not tell them that you had you have taken the abortion pill. Um, they will treat you as though you've had a miscarriage. So, you know, we can see that there are people who sell the pills themselves, uh, advising these young women about not speaking up about the complications and why they ha and they're having the complications. So um, that that's very interesting that you would bring that up. Absolutely. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the risks of making mifepristone available in pharmacies or through mail? Yeah. Now, people who, who people out there who think of chemical abortions as just a matter of taking a pill, they, they look at this and they go, oh, I don't understand. What's the difference between taking a pill at the doctor's office and, and taking it at home? Um, it sounds like a legitimate question, but it betrays a basic misunderstanding about how these pills work and the risks that are involved. Now, you remember when I told you all earlier that the effectiveness of these pills drops off and complications increase? the farther along woman is in her pregnancy. Do you remember how I mentioned that these pills do not work in circumstances of ectopic pregnancy? If a woman comes into the office to get her pills, they can use an ultrasound there to check how far along her pregnancy is, determine whether she's past that seven week window where efficacy begins to wane and the risk of complications increases. An ultrasound can also confirm whether or not the child is safely implanted in the uterine wall are dangerously situated in the tight confines of a woman's fallopian tube. A prescriber relying on a woman's recollection of her last menstrual period or reporting on, or, or asking her to report any tangible symptoms of ectopic pregnancy, he's simply doing that over the phone or, or, or even on a video. He doesn't have that assurance. If she misestimates her gestational age or misses some signs of ectopic pregnancy, um, uh, the prescriber won't know any differently. Um, and, and, you got to understand something. Ectopic pregnancy doesn't necessarily manifest by the time when she's getting ready to take these pills. It may be a couple of weeks later where they get any signs of it. But the point is, you with an ultrasound, you could detect detect that ectopic pregnancy. But if you're just relying on her own reports, that's a quite a risk. Um, any miscalculation, uh, intentional or not, on her part, and the drugs could prove dangerous or at least in, ineffective for her. Prescriber long gone, far away, or pharmacy not really set up for treatment. She'll have to rely on the nearest emergency room or urgent care facility, whether or not she gets there in time and, and whether or not they're prepared to give her the treatment she needs. Uh, that, that's an open question. She's going to get the service, the, the help that she needs. Online pharmacy and express mail distribution of mifepristone all make it more likely that women who are past the deadline or have undetected ectopic pregnancies will get and take these abortion pills and that they will subsequently suffer the complications and consequences that are more common to women with later or extra uterine pregnancies. Okay, and we're gonna have to leave it there. Randall O'Bannon, National Right to Life, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Glad Positive, to be with you. It was wonderful. Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation all across the Commonwealth. Thank you for joining us today. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life. 
Popular Fox News personality and pro-life champion Rachel Campus Duffy will keynote the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation's Celebrate Life Banquet at the Radisson Hotel Harrisburg on Wednesday, September 22nd. Come join us for this uplifting event that brings together pro-lifers from across the state. You can register on our website, paprolife.org, or by calling 717-541-0034. Seats are selling fast. Don't miss out. Go to paprolife.org today.